0: Good morning. morning. How are you all doing? Good. Were you blessed to partake in the Lord's Supper today? Amen. Let's turn to the book of Obadiah. It is a small book, part of the Minor Prophets. We're going to read the first nine verses. It says, "...the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who do- live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling." Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good and righteous God. We are privileged to gather in your midst to worship you, the Holy One. We thank you for your son Jesus, for sending him for us, for the atonement of His sins, of, of, of our sins on him, that you would pour out your wrath, God, on him, so that it might be abated for us. We are not worthy of that at all, God, but you made us worthy. Thank you, Lord, for the sanctifying work you do. Thank you, Lord, that we are justified by grace through faith and that this is your work, Lord. Thank you for your mercy to us time and time and time again, God. We pray you'd go before us now. Let us hear your word. Respond to it in faith, Lord. We pray for our children uh, in their class receiving instruction as well, Lord. Plant your word deep in their heart. God, be gracious to save each one of them. Let them come to know you in a profound and a real way, Lord. Let them know the one true king as as you are, God, their Father. Lord, have your way with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have been going through Obadiah for the last few weeks, and we are going to be primarily picking it up on verses six through nine. Uh, we'll do a little bit of review from last time and also look at verses 2 through 4 uh, just to make sure we have the context and everything. Um, the focus last time was talking about biblical justice. And so we are going to pick up basically with part two of biblical justice prevailing. When we look at Obadiah, there's really actually two declarations of judgment in these verses that we read today. The first is in the accumulation through verses 2 through 4, culminating in that very last um, phrase in verse 4, where God says, from there I will bring you down. So that's really the, the first judgment, so to speak, is that God is going to bring them down. As we have looked at already, why is he bringing them down? Because of their pride. But then it moves into this next section, primarily picking it up in verses 6 through 9, where it's like the judgment is essentially re-emphasized or restated. And he goes into detail as to what this judgment specifically looks like. So when we look at verse 6, it's the result of Edom turning on Israel that they themselves will now be completely plundered. At a time when Israel uh, had just been attacked, at a time when uh, they were at their lowest, basically Edom seized on the opportunity and took advantage of the Israelites being basically unprotected and unguarded. And they went in and ended up plundering the Israelites. Well, now we see in verse 6, the very thing happens back to Edom as part of their judgment. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. So definite God is that he will bring this to pass, that he uses... a, a, a. a grammar in Hebrew called the, the prophetic past, essentially, that he is guaranteeing that this will happen, that he can talk about it as if it already did. So that's why it's in the past how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Uh, God is saying, hey, this is such a sure thing. We can talk about it as if it's already been done. And when God makes a declaration, that's true, right? I mean, he he says something, and we can be for sure, it will come to pass. So that's verse 6. Verse 7 is Edom is being set up to to fail, and they don't even realize it. So they're basically about to be duped and deceived by the very people they thought were their allies. Uh, They think they have allies. They believe many nations are friendly to them. There was major powers back then. You had the Assyrians that come into play, the Babylonians later on. Um, But the the minor powers, so to speak, like the Edomites um, and those surrounding, even the Philistines, to some extent, some of those smaller powers, usually what would happen is, is they would make agreements with each other. You could actually even call them covenants, where they would be at peace with each other and and to some extent maybe even have one another's back should one of those bigger powers come. So there was very likely that they had some type of agreement with the Israelites and they break the, the terms of that covenant and turn their backs uh, on them. Why was this so awful, as we've looked at time and time again already? Because they were related, right? The Edomites were related to the Israelites, going back to Jacob and who? Esau, right? Jacob and Esau. So Jacob, you get the Israelites. Esau, you get the Edomites. So there's a relation there. So what happens to Edom? What does this judgment look like? Well, they lose a whole lot. One, they lose wealth. Look at verse 6. Their treasures have been sought out, so they lose their wealth. Second, they get betrayed, so their allies betray them. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you betray you. That term peace there ex- expresses the mutual harmony that flows from what would have been considered a covenant relationship. It's a harmony both parties Uh, obligated themselves to maintain, Um, they initially broke it with Israel, and now, as part of their judgment, the other nations break it with them. So they lose everything they thought they had gained. Furthermore, they lose wisdom if you look at verse 8. God says he will destroy the wise men out of Edom. And remember, where is one of Job's three friends from? He's from Edom. He's called Eliphaz uh, the Temanite, which is one of the major cities in Edom. So God confounds even the greatest wisdom. So they lose wisdom. They lose strength. Look at verse 9. Your mighty men shall be dismayed, O teman. So the military is overthrown. It's all taken. And God, in verse 5, says, look, if these came to you plunderers by night, we talked about this a little bit last time. Like, if someone breaks into your house, they just take the valuable stuff, right? Right? They're just going to take the really valuable stuff. <clears throat> They're not going to, you know, uh, take the little trinket from Aunt Gertrude or something like that. They're not going to do that. But, but God's saying here, like, your punishment is it's all taken. Everything is taken completely. So these robbers and ponderers would only rob what they needed, but when the judgment comes against Edom, it all gets taken away. He says here about the, the, the grape gatherers in verse 5, came to you, would they not leave gleanings? We're going to look at that in a little bit. But they were required to leave the gleanings. God's saying, that's not going to happen to you. Nothing's going to be left. This is going to be a judgment of judgments. Why? Because you came against my chosen ones. So Edom is the target of divine wrath. Is this justice? Yes. Listen, brothers and sisters, all sin, all sin, all sin, did I say all sin? Okay. All sin must be dealt with. All sin. God punishes all sin. He punishes all sin. He is a just God who rules in justice." In justice, two words. He rules with justice. What do we call a judge in the courtroom that doesn't punish wickedness? We call him a great judge? No, what do we call him? He's unjust, he's wicked. When a person who is guilty gets off without punishment, what do we say? There's been a great miscarriage of justice, right? It's a great injustice. So when looking at justice, Here's the thing, the Edomites they had their own form of justice. Think about it. The Edomites had a type of justice. Now it wasn't I mean it wasn't biblical justice, but they had a type of justice. Listen, if it's not God's justice, guess what? It's not real justice. You call it whatever you want, but if it's not God's justice, it's not real justice. You can dress it up and call it justice but it isn't. You can yell it over and over again, it's not justice. You can stomp and scream about it, it's not justice. So if it's not grounded in the word, if it's not founded upon his truth, it won't be justice. And what some people call today, what some people call justice, it's not justice. Okay? It is injustice. There was a pastor back in the early to mid-1800s, his name was Elijah... Lovejoy. Kind of an interesting last name. Uh, But he went into the ministry, became a pastor. He was a journalist before he went into the ministry. And while he was in the ministry, he really felt like basically God was calling him to go back and be a full-time journalist. So that's what he did. He ended up leaving the ministry and going, well, really, to the ministry that God called him to, right, to be a journalist. Right here in St. Louis, Missouri. Living in the the early to mid-1800s, and... Uh, so he has this, this, this paper, I think it was called The Observer, but he has this paper in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, we are a slave state at the time, and so God places it on his part, this grave injustice that he sees about him. And so he is writing in a slave state against slavery. One time he observes a lynching, and that just grounds him even more that he needs to be against this great and wicked thing called slavery. Here's the thing. He, he was white. He's writing against slavery. Time after time, the mobs take action against him. One time, they were so upset with him, <clears throat> and, and they knew they probably couldn't get away with doing him bodily harm, they literally pick up his p- printing press, and they carry it down to the Mississippi River, and they toss it in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably there still to this day. I don't know. But they toss it into the Mississippi River. He ends up getting another printing press. Finally, he's like, okay, he moves across the river into Illinois, which ended up being a free state according to, I think, the 1848 Constitution that they passed. So he's over there operating, and this is what he says. If by compromise it is meant that I should cease from my duty, I cannot make it. I fear God more Then I fear man. Crush me if you will, but I shall die at my post. He really felt God had called him to this task to cry out against this great injustice and wickedness that he saw. Four days after writing that and printing it, he died at the hands of a mob. Not one of the ruffians was prosecuted or indicted, there's good evidence that one of them later becomes the mayor of Alton. None of them prosecuted. But note this: there was one young man around who was deeply moved by Elijah's martyrdom. It was a state legislature in Illinois. A state legislator in Illinois, we know as Abraham Lincoln. So when God calls us to a task, brothers and sisters, he'll use us how he sees fit. However he sees fit. And we might not even know the full extent of his using us. All sorts of different ways. I mean, God is working in a thousand different ways that we won't know the vast majority of those this side of heaven. And he is working and working and working. If we believe he is sovereign and supreme... And he is working his perfect will according to his just ways. Amen? I was running the other day. I go running uh, about every other day. And I was running the other day, <clears throat> and I was about a mile from home, and uh, I ran by some workers. They were working on the street, and there was like six of them, and they were taking a little break. And I ran, like, I was on the sidewalk, and they were just like five feet away, and I ran. I was running by them. And as I'm, like, starting to run up, this hill about 50 feet away, I feel like the Lord kind of impressed upon me, hey, I want you to go back and share with them. And I was like, seriously? (laughs) And so I like just kept running. (laughs) And then I was like, maybe the further away I get, like the less like conviction I'll feel from the Lord, you know? And then I was like, man, I'm like uh, Jonah. I'm like literally running away. So then I stopped. And then I was like walking away. <laughs> but finally, I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to go back. I just need like five five seconds of courage, you know, that you will give me the boldness to speak once I, I get there. So I, I go back, and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to say, Lord, just give me the words. <clears throat> and I mean, they saw me run by because they're just like, you know, five feet away as I'm running by. And then like, whatever, it was like a minute later, I'm here I am again. And so I say something like, you know, the Lord doesn't like impressed this upon me like on a pretty regular basis, it really doesn't happen. But he has impressed upon me for me to turn around from my jog and deliver this message to you. And then I just gave him like a short gospel presentation. And the the, the look well actually I had sun, I have prescription sunglasses for when I go running. So I actually took off my, my sunglasses so I could they could look me in the eye. I am like blind as a bat. So I honestly couldn't tell what their reaction was <laughs> <laughs> But I think it was one of like shock that here, here this guy is like running, and then he turns around and now he's you know sharing with us. So they all just kind of like nodded their head. I and, and invited them to church here, and uh, and and went on my merry way. Listen, here's the here's my my point though. Like we don't know when God calls us to do things like that. That that was in the big scheme of life, it's a relatively small thing. It was a very challenging task for me to do, uh, but. <clears throat> like God saw fit for me to do it, gave me the strength to do it, and gave me the words to do it. We just don't know how he might use that in any one of those guys' lives. We just don't know. We don't know, right? God's doing his work, and was he just like, oh, today it'd be fun just to have Mike share with six random guys. No. Like, he's got a sovereign purpose, right? And he's working it according to the pleasure of his will. And very likely... Uh, this side of heaven, I might not know exactly how th- how that plays out in any of those gentlemen 's lives i 've been praying for them ever since you can pray for them too i don 't obviously know any of their names, but i 've been praying for those six gentlemen uh, for the last week or so when i when I first shared with them but we just don 't know we just don 't know how God will use something like that. basically, God wants us to be faithful, He wants us to walk according to his ways, and sometimes the smallest of the smallest of the smallest of the smallest. Of the faithful acts we do can have a profound impact. We just don't always know it. Sometimes God in his kindness allows us to see that, but not always. So so be faithful. So the Edomites, I mean they had a form of justice. Back to justice here. All civilizations, all civilizations have some form of what they would call justice. Now when it's examined, it might not be just, right? I mean, the Nazis had a form of justice. Was it just? No. Was it righteous? No. So we can examine it. It might not be just and right, but they call it justice. Well, the Edomites had their own form too, just like every nation does. They had a a justice of greed, taking advantage of the downtrodden, exploitation. I mean, human trafficking, when you look into it, they end up human trafficking the Israelites. How a nation acts, that shows what the nation believes. So, a nation can say all the things it wants to say. At the end of the day, the actions truly show what it believes. You could even apply that to the church, too, right? I mean, the church can say all the things it wants, but at the end of the day, the actions truly show what it believes. And then we could drill down just one step further and take it to the family, and then we could take it to us, right? Us personally, as believers in Christ, we can say all the things that we want, but at the end of the day, the actions truly show what we believe. So here, Edom ends up taking it all. Look at Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs 27, verse 20. It says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. It will never be enough when you have a twisted form of justice. It will never be enough. It will never be satisfied. A twisted justice is never satisfied. You can never do enough to satisfy it. The angry mob the mob coming after Elijah, the mob coming after people today is never satisfied. And neither is sinful man, right? We want and 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 we want 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 sinfully. It's never enough, okay? Whatever sin you're participating in, whatever sin you're dallying in, it's never going to be satisfied. It will never satisfy you, okay? Anything that's not according to the ways of God, It will fail you time and time again. Your idols, your sin will let you down every single time. There's only one who will be faithful and only one whose ways are faithful. That is Jesus Christ himself. Look at Leviticus chapter 19. Do y'all read your Old Testament? All right, you should. Here's what it says, Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Okay, so, you know, you're going through, and it says, you can't, you know, if, if, if this first... The ledge here is your field. You can't, you can't go right up to it and, and get whatever crop it is that you're, you're harvesting, that you've planted. You can't take it all. That's what God is setting down there. You can't take it all. And then when you're going through, and if this whole stage was the field and you're harvesting and some of it falls to the ground, you can't harvest it all. We're going to find out why. He goes on, And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard And here's why. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So, built into the law, I mean, this is just. God's law, right? Built into the law was a way of provision for the poor. There was justice here. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. I mean, it's the same principle that he's setting down here. Why? It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So built into the law was a system to take care of the poor. But note something here. Note something. Note something. Was it just handed to the poor? No. No. So then what was required of them to get the gleanings? They had to go get it, right? They had to work. Think of the story of Ruth. It's a very short story, so if you haven't read it, you should read it again. right? She and Naomi, her mother-in-law, I mean, they're poor. They're like dirt poor. And what did Ruth have to do each day? What did she have to do? Like, we always forget this part of the story. Because we're just like, oh, Ruth and Boaz. That's such a beautiful little story. Where's my Boaz at? You know, that's like all what the ladies are asking. But what did Ruth have to do each day? She had to go to the field and pick up whatever fell to the ground and what was left by the harvesters. What was Boaz required to do as owner of the field? When things fall to the ground, right, he's got to leave it. He's got to leave the edges untouched. That That's justice. So he's following the commands of the law. He wants to be just and right in regards to how he takes care of the fields. But I want you to notice what he does, and we're going to look at it so you can see it yourselves. Ruth chapter 2. In verse 15, Ruth 2 says, When she rose to glean... Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. So he's basically like, don't, don't mess with Ruth, right? I'm sure he said that for many of the people that were in his fields that were poor. Like, don't, don't mess with them, right? He knew the hearts of men. Don't mess with Ruth. He goes on. And also pull out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So what's he saying there? I mean, the law is already in place, but he goes one step further, right? Like, you've got your bundles. I actually want you to take some out and, like, like, leave a nice little pile for her to be able to take, okay? And then it goes on as, like, and do not rebuke her. Like, basically, like, don't make fun of her. Don't look down on her. Don't be a reproach to her. But, he, but so you have the law, and then what does he do? He goes beyond what the law is required. One, let's just make sure, as brothers and sisters in Christ, especially under the new covenant, like a lot of times we're like, Lord, what is like the tiny little minimum I have to do to serve you? Like, really? Like, is that really what our approach is? Because you got Boaz here under the old covenant, and he's like super generous. Super generous. So he's instructing his workers. He's, I mean, he's blessed, right? He has some type of, of wealth that he has workers working for him, right? He's got fields. But what does he do? He wants to bless others with it. So he, he instructs his workers, pull out some from the bundles. Was that justice? No, that's mercy. You could even call it love, right? The law had built-in requirements, but he goes further. So God himself is a just and righteous judge. He's the one that administers biblical justice. And it is a righteous and just justice. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. We'll start in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words... And prevail when you are judged. I mean, this is about God's namesake. Let God be true, though everyone is a liar. We're talking about the namesake. Like, listen, when we act according to his word, guess what? We uphold his name. We attest how good and right and true he is. It's a testifying, a testimony, if you will. So, what happens when we don't, when we do the opposite, when we're not walking according to his ways? Well, the opposite is true. When you don't act according to his word, you testify that you don't think God is good and right and true. Your way is good and right and true, not God's way. But there's only one way that can be true, right? There's only one way that can be good. So part of us testifying about the Lord is walking in his ways. And we want to be sure that when it says, let God be true, that we're reflecting that truth to others and even to ourselves. Look at what uh, Abraham says concerning the Lord in Genesis 18. There's a similar idea going on here. So, this is when Abraham is interceding for Sodom. He starts in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24 of Genesis 18. Therefore, or excuse me, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And then he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the rich, righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. And then notice what he says Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So God has an administration of justice, He is the administrator. Abraham knows this, and that's what he appeals to God's justice. You know, when you know God, when you see him work, when you understand what kind of God he is, like, like Abraham knew the Lord. He knew Yahweh. And what does he appeal to? God's justice. He knew God is above reproach. He knew God is holy and righteous. He knew God is true, though every man be a liar. So he appeals to his justice. God, I want you to be just in this situation. And, and, and we can step back and know, well, Abraham's not doing that for his own benefit. He's doing it for the benefit of the city, specifically for Lot and his family, right? I mean, he's a type of Christ, if you will, interceding so that Lot and his family might be saved. So there's this idea here of justice, justice prevailing. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord. What is he? He's righteous. And right, or you could say just, are your rules. Over and over again. That's the echo of Psalm 119 regarding God's word. It's righteous, it's true. Why? Because God is righteous and is true. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the song of Moses. He says, give ear in verse 1, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distilled as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. And then notice what he says in verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So when we talk about God's righteousness or justice, it means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So he always acts in accordance with what is right, and guess what? He is the final standard of what is right. So when people say, I want justice, like what are they requesting? Well, Really, sometimes when you examine it, what they're requesting is, I want things to go the right way for me. I want justice for me. But it's not about what we want. So once it becomes an issue about what you think, or what you want, or what you deserve, then you've removed justice from the picture, and you've replaced it with your own wants and desires. You're starting to distort justice. Here's the thing. In terms of In English terms, that term righteousness, you'll see it in the New Testament um, and in the Old Testament. Righteousness and justice, obviously, are different words in English. But in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, they each have just one word at their base. We translate them two different ways, um, but it's just one word in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's just one word in the Greek New Testament. So uh, when you see just or justice or then also righteous... In either the, the Hebrew Old Testament or the Greek New Testament, the vast majority of the time, they're coming both from the same word on each side. And the word in the Hebrew is ascetic. The, the, Hebrew, the word in the Greek is de chaos, okay? That's where when we're talking about justification, it's that same root word. Just, justify, justification, righteous, righteousness, they're all linked together coming from that same one Greek word. Does God always administer justice to people? Well, not on this earth. Right? Not on this earth. Yet. But one day. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Think about that. The precepts of the Lord are right. And what is the result of that? Rejoice in the heart. Rejoice in the heart. We should take delight in God's law. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. I mean, hopefully you've had time, if you're a believer, you've had times where you've been in the Word and you've been studying it. And like something like pops out to you, right? And you're like, dude, I never really made that connection, or I never realized that before. I mean, your eyes are being enlightened. That verse is being held up to be true. So God's laws are upright and holy. What we find out is the unrighteous will not go unpunished. Now, it might not be in our timing, right? But it will be in God's timing. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Here's the Lord speaking in Isaiah 45, verse 19. He said, at the the end of verse 18, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak, what does he speak? The truth. I declare what is right. There's that word right again. It's coming from that same idea of right, righteousness, just, justice. God makes the rules. He administers the justice. Guess what? We bend to him. We bend to him. So, listen, though justice is not always given on earth right away, sometimes, guess what? What does the Lord do? He shows justice on earth in a real and clear and tangible way to leave no doubt that that judgment is directly from his hand. Think of Korah. And his rebellion. They rebel against Moses, Korah, and his followers, right? And what does the Lord, what does the Lord say? Well, I want you to see it. Look at Numbers 16. Verse 27, number 16. This is the judgment being handed out. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Pretty clear where the judgment was coming from, right? Like God made it, Crystal clear, he decided to execute judgment right then and right there. So sometimes he does. Why? Well, really, for a few reasons. When he does that, to remind us that justice will occur someday for all. Okay, the judgment of Korah and others—it's like, oh wow. Well, someday that will happen to all, and we will be judged not just for for temporary things, but for an eternity we will have some type of judgment. So to remind us that justice will occur someday for all. Second, to let us know that he sees our plight. Like Moses, I mean, time and time again, people, like his his own, you know, blood was coming after him. So sometimes God executes judgment. He shows justice to let us know that he sees our plight. Think of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Did God bring judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh? Yes. So to let us know he sees our plight. Also to encourage others and us to stay upright and avoid evil. Like judgment is coming, right? There will be a day, Obadiah gets to it, the day that judgment, judgment for all, judgment in an eschatological sense, like end time stuff, will come for all. And then fourthly, sometimes he executes the judgment to, to rid the world of evil, you can think of the Canaanites being wiped out. Okay, that's judgment being executed. So, will the Lord give justice to all the nations that disobey Him? Absolutely. Look at Acts 17. This is Paul speaking. He says in verse 30, Acts 17, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. And there's that word, in righteousness, that de-chaos, the righteousness, the just, the justice. That's how he's going to judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising them from the dead. Here's the thing. Judgment comes with justice. So if we're crying out for justice, we better realize that judgment comes along with it. It's not a matter of if there will be judgment, but rather whose judgment it will be. And listen, God will mete out justice in the proper amount. He knows exactly how to do it, and he will. On that last day, I guarantee you, you, there will not be anyone there thinking, wow, I can't believe that justice wasn't served today. No, he will do it. And there's not going to be any, wow, he surely let that person off pretty lightly. No, here, here, here's what we're looking at. Here, we get a picture in Revelation of what God's doing. Look at Revelation 16. Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. I mean, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? The seven bowls of the wrath of God? So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. I mean, that's awful stuff, right? It goes on. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say and listen to what the angel says. Just are you. Maybe your version says righteous. Just are you. These bowls are being poured out of God's wrath. And this can, can the angel lie? No, it's not your question, y'all. They can't lie. He's speaking truth. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. He's just. Why? Because he brought the judgments. He's just, which means it's that same word, righteous. Why? Because he is giving out the judgment. That is deserved. The bowls of wrath are being poured out. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then it goes on. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the wrath is being poured out, and it is righteously and justly being poured out. God is in control, ruling over the affairs of men. He does as he pleases. And here's the thing. What he does, he does according to his good and right character and nature. So that whatever he does, whatever he does is good and true and pure and righteous. So then what's our response? You probably didn't see it during worship. <clears throat> maybe this front row did. Maybe the, the row behind them. Um, but John uh, McNeil, how old's John? Like 10, 12 months or something? 10 months? Hey, I'm pretty good. <clears throat> John, every time his dad David put him down, or I don't know if every time, but the one time I looked over, he put him down, and he like is making a beeline towards the altar. Like, towards the stage, right? But here's the thing. I thought that was a p- perfect picture for the end of my message today is, like, what is our response to the fact that God is going to come in justice and righteousness and we are going to be under the judgment of God? It is to come to Him. And, and, and it is to repent. So when Paul is telling <coughs> the people he's, he's sharing with When he's telling them, God calls on all men to repent, the picture that God is talking about is really, we can see, with little 10-month-old John crawling towards the altar. Like, repent. And repenting is not like running away, but it's a coming to. Coming to the Lord. And here's the thing. If, If we don't think our sin is that much of a big deal, if we don't think we need a Savior for it, then you can hear the word repent and you can hear it wrongly. And you can just be like, oh, yeah, Lord, I, I did kind of mess up speaking to my friend the other day, and I, I won't do that anymore. Like, that's not, that's not the real idea of repentance. It's really like, hey, you are fallen, and the judgment of God is going to come upon you. You've got a little bowl of wrath that's reserved for you, each one of us. We've got a little bowl of wrath reserved for us that is measured out perfectly according to what we deserve. And guess what? If you're an unbeliever here, like that bowl is partially tipped, ready to be poured out on you. But here, God calls on you to repent, calls on you to forsake your sin, calls on you to come to him, to return to the Father. Confess those sins and realize, guess what? That his son took the bowl for you. The wrath you deserved poured out on his son. But you have to repent. You have to repent. You have to really believe and come and realize what? Jesus paid the price. He paid the price. And it was enough. One of two people gets the wrath of God. Either Jesus, who did it 2,000 years ago, or you. And I encourage you today, if you're not a believer, and that bowl is slightly tipped, ready to be poured out, you have no guarantee of tomorrow. You have no guarantee. So make today the day of salvation, the day that you truly believe, the day that you truly trust. Make today the day that you completely surrender. Don't be like the Edomites who were prideful. Don't be like them who thought they had justice figured out and were going to do it however they wanted. No. Humble yourself and come to the Lord, all right? Uh, Little John doesn't exactly know what he's doing, but guess what? He's headed in the right direction, all right? That needs to be like us, all of us. And for us believers here, who maybe haven't been making godly decisions or walking in righteousness, you need to be like him too, and head to the altar, and get right with the Lord. You need to be cleansed. Just and righteous is the mighty God that we serve. And he offers forgiveness through the blood of his son Jesus. Will you receive it today? Will you receive it? Some of you need to humble yourselves and confess. I'm talking to the brothers and sisters here. You've been cleansed by the blood, but guess what? You sure ain't acting like it or living like it. And then we're back to well, what you truly believe is seeing how in our actions. So we humble ourselves, we come before the Lord. Listen, he's like the parable of the prodigal son. He's not there waiting to to hammer you. He's waiting to give you a big hug and welcome you back. That's our Heavenly Father. That's available for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray for anyone here who might not know you, Here they have an opportunity in their heart of hearts to confess you, to repent of their sins, and to trust in the work of your son Jesus, to trust in what you did through your son. I pray you give them the gift of faith, Lord. Pour out your saving grace upon them. Let them truly believe. And for your children, Lord, gathered here, May they receive this word. We are, words don't completely do it justice, but we are so blessed. Blessed upon blessing upon blessing. The riches of Christ are ours. The wrath of God abated. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. For doing that for the Father and for doing that for us. For being obedient to what God, your Father, called you to do and for loving us and doing it. Thank you that you are our Savior. Lord, speak to people's hearts regarding their actions their thoughts. And just as Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And you cleansed him, Lord. We ask those that cry out today in repentance that you'd cleanse them as well. Make them anew. Just as Acts 3 says that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Refresh your children, Lord. Give them refreshment by your Spirit in you. We pray this for your glory. Amen.